0: It wasn't until the day of my flight that I started feeling scared because the day of my flight was the day that Will Smith responded to them. And for those who don't know, they set out a challenge for Will Smith to bungee jump out of a helicopter on his 50th birthday. Uh, Will Smith responded on March 6, 2018, the day of my flight. So I was on the way to the airport to move my life to California and the boys called me while I was at a gas station and they said, go check Will Smith's YouTube channel, go check Will Smith's YouTube channel. And I did and sure enough, uh, there's a video from Will saying like challenge accepted. And I remember being on the plane being like, I did not think this was gonna happen. It starts with just taking that leap.
1: You have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that, even if it fails, even if it fails you are yeah. going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beat in death. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding me, Founders. Get me, get me, get me. You just heard from Zach Hanovar talking about the moment he realized he needed to move on from the stagnant safety of his traditional finance company and forge his own path. Zach is now the founder of the management company One Day Entertainment, which powers the financial side of channels such as Yes Theory, Airac, and the Cheeky Boyas. Beyond harnessing the power of multi million subscriber channels, Zach is also the co founder of the influencer merchandise company Fan of a Fan and CEO of Creator Now, which is basically film school reimagined for the digital age. But before LA's creator scene, Zach was learning business the old fashioned way, hustling Lunchables on the playground and operating alone at home from as early as four. And even before he was born, Zach's life was primed for practicality. So let's take a look at the story before Zach's story, one that paved the way for his unique balance of both steady utility and daring imagination. Can you tell me some of the stories you've heard of you and your mother traveling from Iran to Canada?
0: So I was four years old, so a lot of this has been told to me by my sister, my mother and father. The backstory is that uh, around 1980, there was a revolution in Iran where the country became ruled by, you know, an Islamic regime that forced people to abide by different religious standards and obligations because of the Islamic regime that came in, a lot of countries started closing off their borders to people that would travel with Iranian passports. My mother is not very religious at all. And so when this stuff happened, she didn't really like the changes. So from the moment that this happened, my mom had also had the opportunity of traveling abroad in her younger years. And so she had seen what was available in the world and was familiarized with like what Western society freedoms look like and so when the revolution happened my mother and father had just had my older sister my sister was also born with a rare blood disorder called thalassemia essentially means that her body didn't produce healthy red blood cells and at the time no one really knew what that meant so from a very early age doctors had really given my sister only a few years to live some doctors were painting a very grim perspective and others were you know giving opportunities for solutions. So that kept them there. And then how I came around was because one of the doctors suggested that there might be an opportunity to get a bone marrow transplant from someone else who has the same blood type as my sister. And essentially in thalassemia, you can be a major or a minor. My mom and my dad were both minors in thalassemia, which means that they're slightly affected by the blood disorder, but not to the point where they really notice it in their day to day lives. Whereas obviously when they conceived my sister, uh, she ended up becoming a major and you know had very serious health complications because of it. And essentially the doctor said, if you have another child and that child is a minor, there is a chance that we can do a bone marrow transplant. Uh, and maybe that can provide significant health improvements to your daughter. And my mother and father were like, let's do it. You know, we didn't want to have another kid. We've gone through 12 years of raising this child through these various different health complications Um, and then I was that kid and I came out a minor. Lo and behold, after all of that, they didn't move forward with it because they thought that the chances of risk by that time were too high. And my mom and father decided, you know, it's not worth the risk. Let's just live with the consequences that this disease is bringing on and we'll just raise a son. And my sister lives a very healthy life now. She just turned 41 and the only real complication she has is she has to get blood uh, injections about every six weeks.
1: How does that story make you feel?
0: I feel a sense of like, damn, I wish that story ended with me being able to actually save my sister, or else it just feels like I kind of came about in whatever circumstance to like, not actually provide that much value.
1: It's also interesting how you like phrase it through the lens of like utility. I think it's a reason that you've been able to give so much to so many people. Moving to Canada, can you tell me some of your earliest memories growing up there? So the circumstance
0: was that it's really hard to leave Iran. A lot of countries won't accept Iranian immigrants into their countries. My mom went through probably a five-year period of, you know, applying for visas and getting declined. And she has a brother in Vancouver. The thought was, what if the brother sent a tourist visa request? And the Iranian government basically said, okay, we'll accept the request for you, your son, and your daughter, but your husband needs to stay so that we know that you guys will come back. And so that was my dad basically understanding that I will stay. You take the kids and go. They'll have a better life in Canada. And we talk about it to this day. I'm internally indebted to that one sacrifice that he made. My early days in Canada from Iran. I remember it being pretty tough. My mom didn't speak English, and so it was hard for her to get a job. My sister was 17, and she started working right away. I think my mom started working in a, as a volunteer so that she could just get work experience and start to practice the English language. I was home alone from the age of four because we couldn't afford a babysitter. So I remember my mom and my sister would train me to be home and know what I need to do as a four-year-old on weekends when I wouldn't go into like kindergarten. But I just learned independence like that. And I think where I might have lost a little bit of of those like years of having like a traditional childhood, I gained in acceleration of my maturation and
1: independence.
0: But I didn't get that perspective until later on in life.
1: So did you ever in the youth full years think of ways to make money?
0: Well, before that, I'll give you two stories. One is, yeah, my mom used to leave out breakfast for me when I'd wake up home alone. And one morning I went and I opened the fridge and right beside the gallon of milk was a bottle of Pepsi. And I thought to myself, who says that cereal is made with milk? And I made my cereal with Pepsi. And I was like, whoa, nothing crazy happened. Like it tastes a little weird, but I can change things if I want to. Now I'll give you another story. Not too many few weeks later, my mom left out Eggo waffles for me. And I remember thinking to myself, why do these go in the toaster? Why don't they go in the microwave? And then I also had the curiosity of thinking to myself, I wonder what the maximum time a microwave can go to is. Put in 30 minutes and I got distracted by the television. 30 minutes later, the house is filled with smoke. I opened the microwave door and here's like a black pile of ash of what remains from Eggo Waffle. So that was kind of I learned my lesson. I never did that again. But those were some instances where at a very early age, I started to realize that I could change the way that things were supposed to happen and through my own independence can find other alternative processes or outcomes. That was the entrepreneurship bug in me. It was the bug inside of me that said, challenge the status quo.
1: I feel like a lot of times or a lot of the people that I've talked to like about entrepreneurship, it's like you challenge the status quo and the challenging of that causes like quirks in, in how you operate with people or around people. And I'm wondering maybe why, why wasn't that the case for you, you think?
0: As far back as I can remember, I've always been a people person. I moved around very frequently. I've never been at a school longer than two years my entire life. I think I've probably transferred through eight schools. And I think I just got an opportunity to mix and mingle with so many different people that I started to become like a chameleon of some sort. With a certain group of friends, I could have and hold a certain level of conversation. And with a completely different group of friends, I would be able to do the, the same thing and, and, and blend into my surrounding. And maybe that's how I started to develop those social skills because I wanted the connection and the friendships.
1: So moving forward to maybe some of those like first businesses, quote unquote.
0: I remember being at Costco with my mom. And I really like Lunchables, the Lunchables with the pizza. and you get- I was
1: talking about Lunchables with the Fred like a couple of days ago. And I'm like, we freaking like fiended over those. Like I always had salads growing up because my mom was super healthy. And I would like try to trade up to yeah. a Lunchable.
0: I mean, I feel like that universally happened at almost every public school or whatever school in North America, because the same thing would happen at mine. And when I moved to Toronto, a lot of the kids at my school were like from every country and Similar to me, they got ethnic lunches at school. And, you know, they sometimes got made fun of because their lunches looked weird or they smelled funny. And I would notice that a lot of kids wouldn't eat their lunch, me included, because I was too embarrassed to heat it up in the microwave uh, and risk the, the potential of being made fun of.
1: Why, what, like what was in your lunch?
0: Spices, different stews, like things just looked weird or like they were just foreign to the North American, you know, Canadian kid. And so they tended to just be like, your lunch is weird. You know, where's that from? What is that? That looks like whatever. So I started realizing, oh, all these foreign ethnic kids will trade their lunch for Lunchables or even pay for Lunchables. So I started asking my mom, OK, can you buy me chocolate bars and Lunchables in bulk from Costco? I will sell them. And she was like, OK. <laughs> so she was like my first plug at the beginning <laughs> and she would help me and, and buy Costco things and then. She'd like want to make sure that that was what I was doing with them. And so like, you know, she'd say like, you can have some of them and are you selling them? Are you making cash? Like how much are you selling them for? And so she just thought it was cool that I was doing that, but I kind of took the whole operation under my own wing and I started like doing it to the point where then I could buy myself the things that my mom wouldn't buy me, which at the time were like basketball cards, sneakers, like fitted hats, all those things my mom wouldn't buy. And so this was kind of like my solution to that. Okay, I'll make money this way and then I'll go buy those things for myself. It was like the most magical feeling of control that I can make one plus one equal two and multiply two into four and turn four into eight and it works and people are happy with it. Supply meets demand. It was like a beautiful thing. This is like economic equation made sense in my mind and I liked being the catalyst of it and I liked the way that people perceive me for it. I thought there was a cool perception. So it was like, All of the things were clicking and I kind of just wanted to follow that road.
1: Did you like have an idea of what you wanted to do or where this like hustler mentality would lead?
0: I knew that it would lead to business, but I didn't even know if I knew the word entrepreneurship. I remember when I first discovered the word entrepreneurship, I would tell people that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I would spell it incorrectly. (laughs) And then people would be like, you know, like it's not spelled that way. And I'd be like, oh crap. And they're like, you want to be an entrepreneur? You can't even spell entrepreneur. Those are my youngest memories of like knowing the word. But I thought in my mind, it was like, I want to be a businessman. They wore fancy suits and they had nice cars. They had a lot of money. And I thought that was cool at the time. Also, I listened to so much rap music that would idolize those figures. I think that's probably where a lot of that desire came from was through like listening and hearing about these role models and figures in the world of business. And I also remember, you know, when I was like 12, 13, 14, the questions of like, what do you want to be when you grow up became more real. I started researching and I all I knew is that I just wanted unlimited upside. It means that there there is no ceiling to the amount of reward that I can garner financially. From this job let's call it whereas when I thought to myself like okay if I want to be a doctor there's to some degree a ceiling on what doctors can make I really wanted to be a teacher and then I realized there's a cap on what teachers can make and I was like I don't want to be a teacher anymore I want to be a firefighter and I rode my bike to the fire station by my house and I told the firefighters I want to be a firefighter can I like hang out here and I hung out there for like a day and then they told me what they make every year. And as a 13 year old, I was like, I'm out of here. I'm not going to make $80,000 a year for the rest of my life. I'm not going to do it. I just knew I wanted a lot of money. I grew up like without a lot of money. And My family didn't have a lot of money. And it was constantly reminded to me that money brings freedom. And the reason that we don't have certain things is because we don't have money. And we can't go do these things. We can't travel because we don't have money. And maybe we, we came here as refugees, but maybe that wouldn't have been the case if we had money. And so it became very important to me very early. Like I have to be able to make money.
1: Do you have an idea of like how much you actually needed?
0: I don't think any of those were like really based in reality or like, you know, it was all kind of r- relative. I know that at the time, like, you know, what $80,000 would have been to me as a 13 year old would have been insane. Doctors can make hundreds of thousands and that's crazy. Hundreds of thousands is a lot of money. And I knew that like being a millionaire is like insane. And I was like, okay, well, there's no reason why that can't be me. And to me more just meant better. You know, now I don't think it's bad to be a firefighter if that's what your passion is. You know, i applaud people that are teachers and i think we should be paying teachers more than we pay the highest surgeon of doctor truthfully but unfortunately that's not how the world is structured and so what became apparent for me was i just wanted to work as hard as i possibly could and i wanted my financial return to be uncapped so that my unlimited work could result in unlimited upside and financial reward and as i spoke to people people were like that's only possible in business because a business could grow to become you know, Amazon.
1: So you had this idea of like, okay, I want to be a businessman, entrepreneur. When you went and were approaching university, how did you start to solidify some of the, I guess, paths towards that life?
0: So yeah, so when I got to university in my first year, I thought to myself, I'm going to work in business. What areas of business can I go into? And I was like, investment banking makes the most money And so in my first year of university, that's what I wanted to do. And I would go to networking events with investment bankers and people in the finance space. But I would talk to people that would say for the first few years of your career, you're pulling these insane hourly shifts for a few years. I barely even like saw my mom and like had to sacrifice my social relationships. And I remember being like, oh, my God, I never want to do that. I do not want to sacrifice my enjoyment of any years of my life because I've always thought of life as like, I could die at any time and anything could happen. And I wanna make sure that I'm always happy in the moment. And then I've started to become more of like, okay, maybe I I should like think about just doing my own thing. I went to university in a town called Kitchener-Waterloo and that's tech capital of Canada. It's where Blackberry was founded. It's where Google has their Canadian headquarters. It's where Shopify has a big presence now. Microsoft has their Canadian headquarters. And so it became like being a tech founder was really cool. So I started just saying, like, I want to be an entrepreneur and starting to learn what that meant. And I started realizing that, you know, a lot of students would skip class and then cram for exams. And there was a tutoring company on campus called SOS. And they would teach crash courses for upcoming midterms and exams for business students. And they were charged $20 at the door. And these lecture halls were so full that, like, some people had to stand. And one time I just went up to the teacher in the front and I said, like, how much do you get paid to do this? And he was like, I don't get paid. This is a volunteer position. I do this for like, you know, to have something on my resume. And I was like, would you teach this separately if I paid you for this? And he was like, yeah. And so I was like, okay. What if I created a more intimate setting where people could actually ask questions and not? And so I tried it out. I rented a school room, hired that same person, and I stood outside of the class's lecture. And I had these business cards printed that said EZA tutoring, said like, you know, crash course on this day in this room, $40, like show up. And people started showing up on the day of the thing. And a few days later, I got a I think it was an email or a call from the office of the dean of the students saying, like, we want to talk to you. And I went into the dean of students office and, and he was like, hey, you know, I heard that you like ran this thing and that you had all these students in this room and you charged them. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, you can't do that. You know, we rent these rooms out to students, but you can't like monetize that. That's for like student use only. And he goes, the founder of SOS is from the school. And he actually started this in a very similar way. We ended up turning it into a university club and all the proceeds go to charity and the school funds the club. He's like, you should do the same thing. And I really told him, I was like, that's not how the real world is gonna work. Like I didn't come to charity school, sir. I came to business school. And I was like, okay, would I be allowed to do it off campus? And he was like, there's nothing we can do to stop you off campus. Like, okay. There's a church across the street from the campus. And uh, I explained the opportunity. I was like, we want to run these things. The school won't let us do it for profit. Are there classrooms downstairs in this church that we can use? And he was like, sure, like, I'd love to support that. And I was like, okay, I'll make like a 20% donation of all the funds that I make to you guys. So that's what we agreed on. And how did they go? At first they started going really well. Like people really liked them. They would pay a premium for them because the class sizes were smaller and I started making a couple thousand dollars every few weeks. I want to say I was running between like six to eight classes for a midterm, six to eight classes for an exam and doing that a few times a year. And then $40 a head, you know, multiplied by like, yeah, I call it anywhere between 20 to 40 people in a room. I'd pay the tutor probably, I think it was like 40 to $60 an hour. So it started to do really well. And then it stopped because i started having complications where like people wouldn't show up when they were supposed to to open the church doors and so my employees started like flaking and then being late and then people would get mad some of my tas wouldn't be as knowledgeable as i had hoped they'd be and so people in the class started complaining and then i would have to like spend all this time issuing refunds and it started to take a toll on me with my own school my own personal life i think one of the biggest indications to me was like i had brought in one of my friends to be part of it. I remember he came to me at one point and he's like, hey man, this is starting to take a lot of time. And I just like, don't really find it that fun anymore. And I felt guilty that I had asked him to do something that wasn't panning out. And I felt like that was my fault. And so I quit and I, I shut it down. When it didn't work out any longer, I was upset, but I was only upset because it felt like I had failed. But I quickly started to change that perspective into, wait a second, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, which is I learned and I made some side income. And I think very quickly, I was like, okay, what's next?
1: And what was next?
0: I shut EZA down going into my senior year of university. I think that was probably 2013, 2014. And when people said, okay, you're an entrepreneur, well, what's your million dollar idea? I remember that would be like similar... Question everyone would ask me. And I would tell them, I don't have one yet, but I'm working on developing the skills of an entrepreneur so that when I do have one, I'm ready. People at the time were like, you know, Facebook, being a Mark Zuckerberg, he was like the entrepreneur because Facebook was like crushing. And I was like, maybe I want to be a tech founder. And I didn't know anything about software development. And one of my roommates was a Waterloo computer science engineer. I remember he told me one day, I get hit up by business students from your school all the time, pitching new app ideas. And it's such a turnoff when these business students have no idea what they're talking about. So then when EZA shut down, I decided, what if I learned how to code? Not so that I could become a developer, but what if I learned the fundamentals of computer science so that I could you know, at least hold my own and not sound ignorant if I was to talk to a developer? Mm-hmm. And so I signed up for a course called CS50, which is Harvard's introductory course to computer science. So me and another one of my friends from economics decided we'll be each other's accountability partners and signed up for CS50.
1: So how was your enthusiasm at the start of trying to do like this online education program?
0: I think I quickly realized like I could never be a developer. It requires such an attention to detail and a like ability to have like this uninterrupted deep work that I just knew that I wasn't I wasn't built for it. I was like, just finish this one course, do all the assignments for this course, and it will help you forever. Partway through the course, my laptop broke and I took it upon myself to do this thing where I thought of the idea that I would sell space on the front of a new MacBook Air to businesses in the surrounding area as ad space. And I created this brochure that said, you know, here's who I am. Here's why I need a laptop and I don't have one. And I reached out to a laser etching company and said, here's my plan. Can you laser etch these logos on my laptop? And if you say yes, I will laser etch your logo on my laptop for free. And they were like done. So then I was like, okay, I have the laser etching company down. Then I went to my friend who worked at the school newspaper and I said, Hey Scotty, I have this idea. If I do it, will you cover it in the school paper? He was like, Yeah, I think that's super clever. If you do it, I'll write about it. I was like, done. Okay, perfect. So then I started going to like different businesses locally and and saying, I have the newspaper confirmed. We have a piece coming out. And then I would tell them, like, you know, the story is going to cover how I'm a university student that it's paying my own way through university i'm maxed out on student loans and wouldn't it be great to highlight yourself as a business that's really supporting students and on top of that look at all the benefits you get i'm in these lectures i promise to attend every class i'll put the logo on my laptop etc etc
1: and did anyone sign up
0: my first few meetings were definitely all like flat out nose. I think like people were intrigued by the creativeness of the endeavor, but they were like, we're not paying you hundreds of dollars to just like put our logo on the front of this laptop. company that said yes was a property management company called Hofico Property Management and Real Estate. And then once I went around town telling people that I got the property management company, it started to snowball from there. I think in total, I raised something like $1,500 or $1,700, which got me a new MacBook Air and like three years of AppleCare. And the piece came out in the newspaper about it and a couple other newspapers wrote about it.
1: And so you definitely were learning a ton of skills, but going into graduation and then finding a job after graduation, you didn't immediately go into entrepreneurship. So what was your, your rationale behind your next steps?
0: I was graduating with a significant amount of student loans that I had to pay off. I think it was like something to the tune of like 60, 65,000, which for Americans is not that much for a Canadian is quite a bit. I also worked every single summer to pay that loan off. And luckily from my very first year of university, I had pretty good high paying internships. So I was very fortunate in that regard. But yeah, when I graduated, I had about 60, 65,000 in student loans and I realized I can't become an entrepreneur with that because it would be crippling to like not make money while I still have to pay these funds off. So I went back to the drawing board of like, let's optimize for money. Let's take the highest paying job that I can get. And I applied to work at the rotational leadership development program at a finance insurance company called Sun Life Financial. Same company I had done all three of my summer internships with. The rotational leadership program takes 12 people every single year and gives them a different role once a year for three years in order to accelerate them into company leadership and management. And it was a very like long interview process. And so I got all the way to like the last 20 applicants. And overall, I was really proud with like my presence and how I showed up. And then I got a call one day from the recruiter who was like, hey, you know, unfortunately we have decided to not move forward with you for the rotational program. But we would love to introduce you to this other recruiter who can chat with you about other opportunities here at Sun Life so that you can still work here. And I said, thank you for the opportunity. I'm not interested in speaking with the recruiter. I'm going to probably call you in a few days to like debrief on what I could have done better, but I will not be pursuing further opportunities with Sun Life. And he was like, well, if you don't mind me asking, like, what are your plans to go do? And I said, I'm going to set a timer for three years and I'm going to go find other opportunities to work. I might apply to some competitors. I'm just going to go find a job in the finance space. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that I provide more value than the 12 people that you picked af- ahead of me. And I'll reach out to you in three years and let you know how I did. And I felt like when I said that, I was like, Zach, that was really mean. Wait, wait, why, why did you feel
1: like you had to say that?
0: I wanted to let them know the truth. But I, I operated so competitively that I knew in my mind it was nothing against those 12 applicants. And it was nothing to spite those people, but I just wanted the most for myself. And I wanted to prove them wrong for looking beyond me. So it wasn't anything to be mean, but it was the honest answer. What I was going to go do is going to go like give my all somewhere. And I would remember in the back of my mind that 12 people were picked ahead of me and that I wanted to see in three years after the rotational program, where were they and where was I? And to my surprise, he was taken back, but not in a negative way. And he was like, you know, we've gone to know each other over these past few years, but I don't think I've ever respected you as much as I do right now. And he said, I have some friends at other finance companies in town. I will be sure to make sure that like I introduce you so that you can interview there. And I said, thanks, dude. That means a lot to me. Um, And he said, you know, keep in touch. I'm always here for you as a resource. And I said, I really appreciate that. And a few days pass probably a week pass and I was out walking my dog and uh, I got a call from him and he was like, hey, Zach, you have, you have 15 minutes? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, uh, I have the head of the RLDP program on the phone. She wants to speak with you. And I was like, OK. And he paged her in and she was like, hey, Zach, that is the first time anyone has ever reacted that way or like not accepted, you know, just a general entry level interview with us. But uh, we want to let you know that we want to open up a 13th spot for you in the rotational leadership program if you'd be interested. That was how I got the 13th spot in the RLDP program at Sun Life.
1: What was your emotional reaction when they said we want to open up that spot?
0: I think it was another one of those putting Pepsi into cereal moments where I realized like it doesn't have to be the way the world tells you it has to be. You can make an imprint by standing up for yourself and knowing your worth i know what i'm capable of i know that i'm smart i know that i'll work hard i know that i can bring good ideas and i can bring an innovative youthful spin to stuff at any company i go to and so they should be lucky to have me and they should be lucky to have a lot of my you know fellow classmates that moment let me know that if you do stand up for yourself and you don't take what you're given at face value then anything is possible
1: So you just got into the program at Sun Life. What was the reality of this job? So I got my
0: first rotation in compliance of all places. I was auditing and uh, looking over the books for the advisors that worked for the company to ensure that everyone was being compliant and that no one was committing any sort of fraud. Is that boring? It is known to be one of the most boring (laughs) places in a financial company. Now, when I was there, right? So I'm in an insurance company, already boring. I'm in compliance in an insurance company, triple boring. (laughs) Oh no,
1: dude.
0: (laughs) And I would talk to people. I started to get a sense of my team. And you know what? There were a lot of kind people on the team. They really welcomed me with open arms. Um, The head of the department was super nice to me. And um, I just started to realize a few things. One, I realized that people had been there for five to 10 years and they weren't considered senior. You had to be there for like 20 plus years to be considered someone who had seniority because people had been there for that long.
1: Blew my freaking mind. And it's also like, I'm looking at my future right now. Exactly. And
0: that shocked me to the core. I had this mindset of, okay, here's my nine to five. I'm going to go home every day and my five to nine is going to consist of starting a new thing uh, as well as like improving my skills. And what I started to notice was, you know, my nine to five was boring data entry for the most part. And I would come home exhausted and demoralized. And after a little while, I started realizing that like, I wasn't doing a good job in my five to nine. I wasn't holding my end of the bargain up. And I started to feel like more and more defeated. And it started to showcase to me why people don't leave a nine to five to do something entrepreneurially, because it's often when you are unhappy at work, you can't find the energy to get yourself out of it. You're like a crab in the bucket. Even if you were to try, it's like the the other thing that you're doing is already taking so much energy from you because it's soul sucking, literally. And if you're unhappy with what you do from nine to five, it's really hard to find anything that fulfills you enough from your five to nine to justify for the other eight hours that you've used that day. So one of the things I started to do was like, okay, well, I only have myself to blame if I'm truly not fulfilled in the work that I'm doing at this company. So why don't I take on some extracurricular projects within this company that could fulfill me? I haven't told many people this story. I went to, I found out about this thing called Lean Solutions Methodology. Where you map out the flow and the process of a business organization and you look for inefficiencies and you optimize them. You figure out the exact flow of how information and things transfer and you figure out what's a redundancy and how do we get rid of it? How do we make it more streamlined? And I started working with the head of the department on, like, I'm going to do this. And she was like, that's cool, great initiative. And so I started getting my work done and doing this on the side. And one day, one of the ladies in the, department came to me and she was a really nice lady but you know uh, came and sat me down and said Zach you need to stop doing this and I was like why and she was like all Lean Solutions does is make people lose their jobs and if you keep doing this people in this department are going to lose their jobs and I was so taken back I didn't understand
1: because it's basically like you doing a good job and making the company more efficient would Reduce redundancies, but those redundancies
0: are people. Are people, yeah. And so, I I remember just being so shocked because all I was trying to do was learn and do a good job so that I could like one find fulfillment and feel like I was adding impact, and two so that like I was just you know could be recommended for better positions in the future, and so that I could be like regarded as a high performer. And she was like, no, don't do this. And I said, you know, well, you know, if someone is If someone's job isn't necessary, I'm sure there's other places in the organization that we can find work for them. Maybe work can be more fulfilling if they're actually doing something that's adding impact to the organization rather than something that's deemed a redundancy. And she kind of got, you know, fed up with it. And she was like, whatever, do whatever you want, but this is going to lose people their jobs. And like, that's nothing to be proud of.
1: How did you feel like after that?
0: I mean, it was face to face. She said to my face, she said it, she said it, she said it it in my
1: cubicle. Oh shit. It was, yeah. I'm so used to like business being through zoom calls. (laughs) So face to face. She said,
0: she said it in my cubicle. She got up and she walked away and I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. I need to get the fuck out of here. And uh, I just realized that like any type of work that I do here, it's not going to work. I don't belong here. I'm getting beat by all the people who are pursuing entrepreneurship right now because I've convinced myself that I can trade eight hours of my day for a check and then I can catch up to everyone else that's spending their full time life pursuing a business in my five to nine. And I'm not even doing a good job because I'm coming home tired. And all I want to do is like sleep and just like numb my mind with like a video game or something that's unproductive. And so I said, okay, Zach. What is the number one skill that you could learn to become an entrepreneur? And the answer in my mind was sales. If I could learn how to sell products and ideas, then when I had the right product or idea, I'd be able to sell it. And then I said, I'll find a sales job at a startup because startups are where innovative people are going and where people on the cutting edge of technologies and trends are. I went on my computer and I looked up my university's entrepreneurship event. And I shit you not, it was the next day. Magical timing. And I applied to sign up and it worked and I registered, which is crazy because I found out later that registration was supposed to be closed and through a bug of someone that worked at the entrepreneurship uh, club, it wasn't. And uh, lo and behold, Shopify was there holding a thing
1: for hiring salespeople. And what was Shopify at this point like? Like, cause you know, Shopify right now, like we look at it as like this massive company, but at that point in what, 2015, what was Shopify doing? Shopify
0: at that point was probably 300 or 400 people in Ottawa. And I want to say anywhere between five to 10 people in Waterloo. And they had just opened up an office in Waterloo for what was called Shopify plus which was an attempt to expand a new office to go after enterprise merchants. And so that was there and I actually had no idea what Shopify was. And all I knew was that they were doing a sales competition and the sales competition was that you had to go up in front of everybody and you had to give a pitch about something that was not a product. You had to sell something to the group and I went up and I did a sales pitch around how we should use our phones less when we're around our parents. So anyway, that was my that was my pitch, and the recruiter came up to me after the thing and said like, "Hey, do you work in sales?" And I was like, "No, I work at this finance company, and I hate it there." And he was like, "Well, do you want to an interview?" And I was like, "Please!" And you know, three weeks later, I was starting at Shopify. It was like night and day, and no one knew what Shopify was. My mom didn't know what Shopify was. She thought I was crazy for leaving this like you know well-known finance company. The people at Sun Life were like you know, where are you leaving? And also it was like, I had just scraped in to get into this program. People in the program were like upset about it. Other members of the rotational program, you know, there's 12 other members of this rotational program. And I sat with them and I told them, I don't, you know, I don't like it here for these reasons. And they said, you know, well, you owe something to this company because they've just invested so much time and resources into training you, into accepting you into this program. And you owe it to this company to like give them a longer shot than two months. (laughs) There were two months, two, three months maybe. And I remember that that mindset really irked me. And I remember my response was probably as angry as like, or probably came off as angry as my initial message to that recruiter, which was, I don't know these people anything. This company would fire you at the drop of a hat if they needed to, to support their bottom line. You are here to help the business you do not owe them anything.
1: And what was the environment like at Shopify? Like like if you could maybe describe it in comparison, right? So if it's like cubicles at Sunlife, like what like what are you seeing at Shopify?
0: It was such a magical time at Shopify back then. It was you could be who you were. In my first day at Shopify, I started as the same day as my director. His name's Mark Bergen, he's the VP of Revenue at Shopify. And, you know, we just were shooting the shit. And I was like, Mark, this is going to be the last job I ever have. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I'm here to learn sales skills. And that's what I'm going to do. I promise you that I'm going to be the very best sales rep you have. And when I feel like I've mastered this craft, I'm going to go start my own business. And so this will be the last company I ever work at. And he was like, well, as long as you master sales and you're my best rep ever, I'm totally okay with that. And so that was like how we started the relationship and him and I grew to have a very uh, like strong relationship and still do have a really strong relationship as, as, as a mentor of mine. It was just magical because it was like uh, every week, 14 new people were starting or more. And so it was like within five months, I was a mentor to a handful of new employees and I remember thinking to myself, whoa, I'm like senior at Shopify. It's been like five months. <laughs> it would have taken me more than five years to become a senior at Sun Life because of just the way that the company was growing at, at Shopify. And it and it very much felt like there was something going on inside of Shopify that no one else knew about except for us.
1: When did you start to feel like you had, because like you, you went in with this goal of like mastering sales um, and you eventually got into like men's men's streetwear category at Shopify, right? So, um, could you talk about like maybe some of those milestones where you thought you're getting close to being, uh, done with like, or like accomplishing what you came there to do.
0: I started off, uh, focusing on men's fashion and streetwear. Uh, I got the opportunity to travel all across the USA to different like, um, trade shows and things of that nature to meet with brands and try to get them to join the platform. I was one of the first people at Shopify who ever got an opportunity to do that. And it went really well every time I did, we'd sign new brands. And so I started to build my own vertical in in streetwear. And that led to me um, calling a streetwear shop in Chicago called Leaders1354 and telling them that they should join Shopify. And the guy who runs Leaders was like, you know, I don't have the time. I recognize that this is important, but I just don't have the time to do it. I'm a retail guy. If, if you know anyone that wants to run our e-commerce, like I'm more than happy to join Shopify, but you know, I just don't have the know-how on my team. And I thought about it for a while. And one day I called him and I said, what if I ran it? Like, I need to learn more about the merchants that I'm selling to. What a better way to learn about the merchants that I'm selling to than like literally work with one of the merchants that I'm selling to. Was that okay? Shopify was like, incredible, do that. Shopify would give you money to start your own st- Shopify store. They had a thing where every employee had, it was I think it was the first two to $5,000 of, uh, you could reimburse yourself, two to $5,000 as long as you could show receipts that those two to $5,000 were spent on starting a Shopify store. So it was like very much encouraged. That's so cool. The best. Yeah. And I ended up running e-commerce for this streetwear store in Chicago. I drove with one of my colleagues, Arsh, and we went down to Chicago. I think in one of those tr- travels uh, across the LA, like to LA, um, I had one of my friends reach out to me and say, "Hey, how long are you in LA for? Um, I'm here visiting these like guys that have a YouTube channel called Yes Theory," and he had told me about these guys. Yeah, what were they doing? They were doing, they, they had just moved out to uh, Venice, California to uh, launch their Snapchat show. And this same friend had been telling me about these guys since university. Um, he was my roommate in university and he had met Matt in one of his trips to Montreal. So I was very well aware when they were doing Project 30, when they were Generation Why Not. Um, I had just been familiar with their content. And he said, Hey, man. I'm in LA right now, staying with the Yes Theory guys. If you're here, you should meet with them as well. And our dates didn't match, but I was going to be there in like a week later. So he set us up to meet and we ended up having this incredible meeting. We went and got salads. And what were they
1: like? What were they focusing on? Like what were like visions at that time?
0: I mean, they were like inseparable friends um, that were so passionate about building a movement and a philosophy. Um, And that really struck a chord with me because I really liked the ideology that they stood for. Um, And I thought, wow, that's so cool. And I had this picture in my mind of them before I met them that, you know, they're YouTubers and that YouTubers probably spend, you know, two hours filming and the rest of the time they probably just surf and have fun and like shoot the shit and like make jokes. And I went and saw their place and it was like very much centered around ideas, and brainstorming and learning and like execution strategy. And that really inspired me. And when we set out to like uh, leave that day, they were like, Hey, if you're ever back in LA, like people stay on our couch all the time. You're always welcome to stay on our couch. Shopify paid for my hotels, but coincidentally, I was back at their place two weeks later and I was staying on the couch. A few weeks passed, and they messaged me and said like, hey, we want to launch our merch line. Can you look at some agreements that we've had? And long story short, we ended up uh, realizing that it was far better to just do it in house. And I was the guy who ran like the streetwear vertical at Shopify so I could help them out. And uh, it was a Mars great idea that instead of running merch, we'd actually build a clothing line. We'd call it Seat Discomfort. and so. That was like the first thing that I did. And I stepped away from the streetwear brand that I was working with leaders to help the Yes Theory guys launch Seek Discomfort. And that led to it going so well at the early days that they were like,
1: how did you know it was going well?
0: Like it started to sell. Like we launched a couple of launches and it got really good feedback. And a couple of their YouTuber friends came to them and said, hey, who makes this? Like, who's doing this? We need merch too. And uh I remember turning to them and I was like, guys, if you guys can keep getting creators to sign up, why don't we just start a merchandising company? I don't want to be running all these people's merch. Like, I still have a full time job. And so we started Fan of a Fan, which is still around today. And not long after, we ended up meeting our third business partner, Ryan, who had built an incredibly successful apparel line that like the Yes Theory guys all looked up to. And we brought him in, and Fan of a Fan started to like take off from there. And Fan of a Fan was the first business I legally incorporated and uh, I put the incorporation thing on my wall in my office, uh, like on my desk. Uh, Office is probably way too luxurious for (laughs) what it was, but I was so proud of that. It was like the first time I legally started a business. And that was probably one of the first moments where I was like, you know, thinking to myself about what life could be like after Shopify. One of the next things that happened is like I started spending a lot of time in Los Angeles and really liking it. And I went to Shopify and I said, you know, I'd really love to move to L.A. if you could like relocate me. Shopify's presence in California was growing and they were actually really down for that. And I told the Yes Theory guys and they were like, you know, you should manage us on the side when you move out here. And at first I was like taken back by the thought of like being a manager. Yeah, what's that even mean? I thought of it as like music management. I had always idolized scooter Braun, and so i knew what management was but i i guess they were like we want you to help us run our business and like we can focus on the content and i remember thinking to myself i don't have the time to do that and i don't want to let these guys down and they said if you're serious like if you're still thinking about it why don't you go talk to this guy named charlie charlie was 2chains's manager and he'll tell you what management is all about and i went with met with charlie jabbily who's also known as CEO Charlie or Charlie Rocket. Um, And for three hours we chatted about management and this opportunity. And I told him, I was like, you know, recently I think I've become really connected to my purpose and my purpose is to empower entrepreneurship and inspire people to take like the leap of faith towards doing something of their own. And that's like what I really gained fulfillment from. And he was like, yet you're sitting here telling me that you wanna do this part-time. And he's like, if you wanna do this, do this full-time. And I started realizing like, yeah, what am I doing? I'm moving to another country across the continent to start up a business for a company that's now worth probably $10 billion. Um, I was like, why am I doing that? Let me start. This is the perfect opportunity for me to start my own company. And I remember after that trip, I went into my regular Sunday or Monday morning sales meeting where everyone was gathered. And I remember as soon as the meeting started, I was like, I'm done here. It was like a very distinctive one moment where I looked around and I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, I think I've gotten everything I have to get out of this experience, and that is why my management company is called One Day Entertainment, because there was one day that I remember being like, okay, I'm moving on, and I went and told the boys, and they were ecstatic, and then I went and told Shopify, and they gracefully graciously let me stay for five months until I got my visa situation sorted and. And uh, the rest is history, I guess.
1: Putting that full send, uh, or I guess like embracing that, was it scary? Was it exciting? Like
0: Again, in a lot of these instances, I don't recall having a lot of self-doubt. I think naturally, I think if anything, I think one of the things that I've just innately always had is probably irrational self-belief and I think sometimes that comes across negatively as arrogance Um, and I have to watch out for that but I've always been a very confident individual so as soon as the opportunity started I was like I'm gonna grab this opportunity by the bulls and like I'm gonna make this thing a household name it wasn't until the day of my flight that I started feeling scared because the day of my flight was the day that Will Smith responded to them and for those who don't know they set out a challenge for Will Smith to bungee jump out of a helicopter on his 50th birthday and uh will smith responded on march 6 2018 the day of my flight so i was on the way to the airport to move my life to california and the boys called me while i was at a gas station and they said go check will smith's youtube channel go check will smith's youtube channel and i did and sure enough uh there's a video from will saying like challenge accepted and i remember being on the plane being like I did not think this was going to happen. I did not think that there was going to be this much eyeball or this many eyeballs on the Yes Theory guys this quickly with all of this happening. Um, and so that started to scare me and like one of my first meetings in like the first two weeks that I was in LA was with Will Smith's manager of like 15 years. Me being like, I've been here for not even 15 days. <laughs> one of the biggest early wins was like our first real brand deal that was with a skateboard company called uh, Inboard, pretty like new startup in the space. And we did a brand opportunity with them. And that was like the first time the guys had gotten like a real sizable check um, that like made them financially feel like, oh, we're good for a while. Like we can make rent, we can pay for food. Like we're good for a bit. And then the next instance where I really felt like a manager was at the jump with Will Smith. I had like really like tried to make the guys feel cared for in that relationship with like YouTube and made sure that they got you know the right terms and made sure that they got access to the footage of the event and a lot of those things for a while seemed really unclear in that process. And I remember at the end of the day of the jump, uh, one of the, the Yes theory guys as mentors, Um, who they care about a lot and that that is like a big influential figure for them. Uh, We sat in this like tent, like this tented like gazebo. He He had basically said like, hey guys, I've been watching Zach all day and you guys really found like the right fit here. And he's been like going around, talking to these executives at YouTube, like standing up for you guys. And he put it as like every creator or every talent needs a manager that has a little bit of a pesky chihuahua in him. I remember that was the moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm a manager and these are my guys. That was the moment that they transferred trust um, and that like it really became like Zach the manager. From then on, it was like I was like pesky chihuahua all all over town. Uh, When did you start to phase out of working as closely with yesterday? Um, I had always thought to myself like, okay, eventually I will take on more talent. And actually build one day entertainment into a management company. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, shortly after I thought 2020 is the year, I'm going to do it in 2020. And then the pandemic hit and the guys were, you know, at a a crossroads of like, what do we do with the channel?
1: Yeah, because like so much of it's travel meeting strangers, like you can't do that in the pandemic.
0: Yeah, and they all started to take that as an opportunity to reflect on what did they want to do? And the answer wasn't make content for some of them. And so that gave them this moment of like figuring it out and determining whether or not they wanted to all still be making YouTube videos together. And if so, what type, et cetera. And I took that opportunity to say, like, okay well, what is going on in this TikTok thing? Like TikTok was the hype. And so I started to look in TikTok and say, like, I wonder if I can work with TikTokers and turn them into YouTubers and maybe I can expand the management company that way. And so that's where I found the Cheeky Boyos and I found Eric found Eric on TikTok through a mutual friend who found his TikTok that blew up about him skateboarding across the, uh, I think Florida or California, um, scooter across Florida, skateboarded across California. And I was like, oh, cool. This guy's like a TikToker, but like, he really seems to have the chops for YouTube. And so we connected and he was like, oh, I don't want to do TikTok. He's like, I want to do YouTube. I am a YouTuber. I'm just using TikTok as a means to an end to become a YouTuber. I want to become the biggest YouTuber on the face of the planet. And, um, we just like hit it off and I wanted to meet with him, but I never thought to myself that I'd manage him. Um, I just didn't know if that lane of content was like what I was passionate about. And when I met Eric, he was not who I thought he would be. I was expecting like this troublemaking, like mischievous dude who was like wanting to prank people and be like a little bit of a menace to society. And what I found instead was Eric is this like sweet, caring, empathetic dude who has a heart of gold, but is covered in endless amounts of ambition and fuel. And all of those things that I had seen that would lead me to believe like he wanted to make prank content or he wanted to do whatever was just a means to an end for him to actually see the success through what he wanted to do, which was hit a million subscribers in a year at the time. He was dead set on this goal. I just started this channel and I want to get a million subscribers before the year is over. I told him that was a terrible idea.
1: (laughs) Why do you think it was terrible?
0: I told him that setting the goal of hitting a million subscribers by the end of the year would force him to make decisions that would compromise his ability to do other things that mattered, such as uh, make money through brand partnerships or such as uh, build a community. And we would go back and forth and bicker on that back and forth all the time. uh, Pretty much all the way up until like september of 2020 um october of 2020 and i was like i'll always give you my perspective but at the end of the day it's your call it's your business and if you tell me you want to hit it like i'm on board but it's my job to also push back and give you the candor of letting you know my honest opinion and that that's been the dynamic we've always had that i think works for us and um as i guess the the yes theory guys were still figuring stuff out in that relationship um, was like more unclear about what my priority should be cuz a lot of my focus has always gone into like expansive projects um i started just putting all my time into seeing if eric could actually gr- like hit um a million subscribers in a year and he? and he did on like december 29th wow. 28th right before that's yeah. insane yeah it was wild and he had 200,000 subscribers to go with a month left, and he cleared two hundred thousand subscribers in the last month. It was crazy. He headed on an island. Uh, he did, had deserted himself on an island, and we came up with this concept of like uh, save Iraq, where we said if you text, if 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 you subscribe, we'll give you your own unique referral code, and if you share your referral code with other friends so that they subscribe, you get you know tracked. On how many referrals you get and subscribers you can generate and we built a list of rewards that people could get for achieving almost like a referral program and those were like handwritten notes from eric and like facetimes with eric and like free merch and it worked like people were sharing those referral codes like crazy large creators were sharing those referral codes
1: and so when did you start to think about you know what your seems like you're really pushing for um and and is top of mind right now with Creator Now.
0: I didn't want to be a manager forever. And the things that I had realized about management were that you spend a lot of your time building up um, someone else's career. And, you know, you get paid for it, and you're part of the growth through commissions and upside. But ultimately, a lot of what is created is not yours. And... I started realizing that i I wanted something that was my own i wanted something that like i could really call mine and i had no interest in also building out a management company because it required me to create these very deep and intimate relationships and i realized how rare it was to find someone that i was willing to do that with because it's a hell of a sacrifice on both parts it's a hell of an investment on both parts and it's uh, not something that I I didn't want to manage anyone if I wasn't willing to give them that level of intimate focus. And therefore, I couldn't manage 5, 10, 15, 20 people. So um, I realized like, okay, moving forward, I actually want to like partner with creators and be a, a co-founder in businesses with them. And um, that was like what my plan was on the next business that that i was to start in um after eric hit a million subscribers in 2020 um we started you know immediately in january thinking okay well what business do we start together this year and it's so funny because we would go to eric and be like okay well what are you passionate about what do you want to do and he was like youtube all i care about is youtube all i think about is youtube we're like dude there's got to be something else here like Do you like any shows or do you like whatever, like any type of foods? He's like, I like pizza, but like mostly just think about YouTube all day. Uh And so then we were like, okay, well what about like YouTuber education?
1: You were all building this, this platform to like enable and teach YouTubers to be better YouTubers. What were the steps to actually making it a platform that would be attractive? Yeah, so first we were like, okay, well, who does this
0: already? And we started finding a bunch of platforms and courses that taught through pre-recorded materials. We found a few where it was like, watch these 10 videos, um, all taught by this so-and-so person. And so we were like, that's mixed up. And the other thing was that like we thought that content creation wasn't a skill that you learn through consumption. You learn through action. And so the game for us became, how do we take that and turn it into a program and so we came up with this idea of what if our program was six weeks long and it was a challenge to post six videos in six weeks and you got an accountability buddy and accountability team to ensure that you actually did that and you uh, earned points through posting videos and in your teams you'd compete with other teams that also got points to see which team can be the most consistent as well as do the other actions that got you points, like attend workshops, actually grow on YouTube? And so that was the initial idea of how this could be innovative, how it could be a gamified experience of growing a channel on YouTube.
1: Where is Creator Now now? Um, and what are you most excited about for the future?
0: Our first cohort of Creator Now, after we kind of like planned out that strategy, went incredibly well. We had like fifty percent of the cohort, uh, which was cohort size was 300 students post six times in six weeks. Wow, that's insane. And most creators, you know, find it very hard to stay consistent at all. But we found that like giving them a community of people that all were trying to accomplish the same thing actually got them to stay consistent. There was a reason beyond their own ambition to stay consistent. Uh, When it worked, we were like, "Whoa, there's something here. We got to dig deeper. Today, creator now is Um, still running cohorts, although we now experiment with the size and length and focus of cohorts. Our our creators then have an opportunity to onboard into a community that lives beyond the cohort so that they can stay a part of a community of other up and coming creators um, that get access to conversations with one another, access to like group discussions, exclusive brand partnership opportunities and as well as like access to book one-on-one calls and group calls with different mentors in the space. So it's essentially our way of, of building film school, but building it for the digital creator.
1: That is so exciting. I think it's going like, to have amazing effects across the whole YouTube community. Um, and you can kind of already see it right now. But um, if you were to look back at like your whole story um, and give a piece of advice to like someone who's considering making the leap into entrepreneurship... Um, what do you think is like one lesson you've learned that, that you think would be most helpful to someone starting that journey? It's hard to boil it down
0: into one thing, but I think my story definitely maybe lends itself to the advice of like knowing your worth and, and valuing your, your impact and contributions. I think it's important to know what you bring to the table and to have confidence in it. Um, Jay-Z always says, and it always says, because I've heard him say this many times uh, in different interviews and songs where he says, closed mouths don't get fed. Um, And so I think it's important to like speak up for what you want in life. And when you speak about it and when you put it out there in the universe and you go after it and you're relentless in that pursuit, you often get what you want.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
0: Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin.
1: Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from
0: Irene Van Burkle,
1: Matt Fernandez,
0: May B Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki McCauley, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang,
1: Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.